Hello and welcome to What Would Jane Do? The podcast that takes a light-hearted look at the early 19th century solutions filtered through the mind of Jane Austen, born to uh, come to bear on 21st century problems. And my name is Julia Golding. I'm an author and a great admirer of Jane Austen. And I've also written a series of children's books inspired by Jane Austen herself, which we'll come to a bit later on. And I'm delighted to say that joining us for uh, coming to join our company today is Mrs. (laughs) Catherine McFarlane, Katie McFarlane, uh, who is looking resplendent, if you are following this on YouTube, in her outfit. So, Katie, tell us a little bit about how you're dressed and maybe why you're dressed like that because that's the big thing about today and our podcast well it's uh, interesting you should ask julia but this is my homage to jane austen as i do every time we have a podcast i admit Uh, but this particularly today is uh, to do with pride and prejudice so i'm wearing uh it's interesting isn't it we're talking about first impressions Mm -hmm. and uh one of the interesting things about jane austen is we have no first impressions really of her there's no attributed portrait although uh, I think there's one that's supposed to be the back of her and several uh, quite dubious ones that have been uh, lost in translation as it were but there's no actual portrait so we never know exactly how Jane Austen actually looks Um, so we can speculate of course and we can go on very vague descriptions from her family Um, but anyway she's often portrayed uh, for uh, uh, marketing purposes as somebody with a mob cap on and a simple blue gown. So that's what I'm wearing today. I'm also wearing, after our controversial to do with bonnets in film, I'm wearing <laughs> my <laughs> Lizzie Bennett bonnet. This is my latest bonnet in, in, in a series of bonnets. Uh, this one's from Hats Period. And if I take it off, give you a sorry for those of you listening at home, I'll just have to describe it. It's a chipped straw bonnet and it's got little rosettes of blue silk and lovely thick uh, ribbon to tie it on with. It's amazingly comfortable to wear. It frames my face uh, and I I couldn't resist it at uh, at the reenactors market I went to when I saw this because uh, it it is just a lovely, uh, simple design. uh, It is absolutely gorgeous and very practical because... Yes. Um, we've got out of the habit. Well, actually, I wear hats all the time, uh, particularly in winter. I'm, I'm a yes. great hat wearer. But uh, you can see it keeping the sun off the glare out of your eyes. That's what I say. I, and that's why I often wear a bergere when I'm uh, reenacting, because it's it's uh, my 18th century sunshades, as I call it, because mm. uh, it does. It protects your face. It stops you getting too brown if, if you are... Uh, I just uh, go red. <laughs> I just go red, so it stops me going red and horrible. Well, I do yeah. too, and I've yeah. I've got very pale eyes, so I'm very sensitive to light. So mm. uh, having having a shade is is a necessity for me, definitely. So uh, we've mentioned that we are talking about first impressions uh, and Pride and Prejudice, and that's because we're recording this on the 28th of January, which is happily the publication anniversary of Pride and Prejudice. So we are 210 years away from the moment that book first came and hit the shelves. Mm. Um, so I always like thinking of Pride and Prejudice as a winter book because apparently um, January is the lowest moment of the year for many people. In mm. the UK, it's when we pay our taxes. I'm sure that probably is <laughs> true around the world. And um, 
so cheering us up with a bit of astute romantic shenanigans is Jane Austen. So, um, Katie, what was your first, in, before we talk about first impressions, what was your <laughs> first impression of Pride and Prejudice when you first read it? Well, I think I was probably about 12. And that's quite interesting because uh, Jane Austen's formal education finished when she was about 12. After that, she was taken out of school uh, and was presumably supposed to be helping her family with various tasks and things like that. But she never stopped reading herself. And she basically raided the libraries of her family and friends. And that was her education, if you like. Um, so I wasn't made to read Jane Austen. I just came across a complete works in very, very tiny print, it has to be said, of Jane Austen on my family's shelves uh, and, and thought, oh, this looks quite interesting. And just studiously read my way through the books, but for fun. not because. Did you find it difficult to read? It took a while to get into the language. It's almost like... Not reading a foreign language particularly, but you need to get it like reading Shakespeare. You need to get into the rhythm of the language. Uh, and But it's very easy to do if you just focus. And I was thinking uh, back to first impressions today and wondering how many children today would have the focus necessary to uh, immerse themselves in a book. And I think, um, I think one of my uh cousin's children made a very sad comment when my mother said well, what books do you like she said oh we're you know we're modern teenagers we don't read uh it's all yeah. split second tiktoks and 40 second exposures to each other and they're actually i think today children are losing the ability to concentrate for very long on anything at all because the entertainment is all so fast and furious Yes, though so I think it's like training. So it's never too late to get off the sofa and start <laughs> to do the half marathon. Um, yes. <laughs> and I think that this is the thing about Jane Austen. I've actually been doing a whole series of BBC radio interviews for local radio this week. I've done yeah. about five or six by now. And talking, you know, to Somerset and Leeds and London, all sorts of places. Mm. And it's varied. I've noticed that if I've got a female presenter interviewing me, they've always been a fan. And if it's a male presenter, one of their questions is, oh, isn't it too difficult for children to read Jane Austen? Um, you see, that, that, make, that comment makes me very angry yeah, as yeah. a reader because nothing is too difficult for children. I think limiting in, them in that way, saying this is a children's book, so this is what you should read, or this is you know, well, just, I don't know, saying this is a lady's book, so this is what you should read. And they did that to Jane Austen in, in her time as well. Don't read anything too complicated for your poor little brains. Um, you know, this is this is improving literature. This is what you should read. Um, and, and it's, it's That's so funny. That's just brilliant. I hadn't thought of it in that connection. Yes. But, you know, it's equivalent to saying they could only read four dicey sermons. Yes, uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're right. Uh, and I don't. So, yes, it is difficult um, to tune yourself in, but I'm sure children master much more difficult things of course they do you know and, and what you tend to find like anything is you read a language and maybe you're not sure of half of the words but you get the general gist of the thing and my parents were very good taking me uh, at a young age to cultural things like Shakespeare plays and they would just explain the basic story to me before I went yeah but even though I didn't understand maybe half at the time of the language I knew where it was going roughly and I knew you know, the, the 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 fact that you were listening to it spoken as opposed to read made a lot more sense. 
So one of the reasons why I've written a series of children's books, um, the Jane Austen Investigate series, is to help children understand the context. Uh, I use a bit of, they're speaking in appropriately, not saying okay and cool, and (laughs) um, they're speaking appropriately, you know, appropriate language, but accessible language. So the idea is, if you can read that, then you're ready to read Jane Austen. And I'm hoping that that's a gateway it's, it's a gateway drug to the Jane Austen, <laughs> you know, class A drug. Um, Absolutely. Right. So before we go, let's now turn to first impressions. And we, as ever, our sort of structure is we're going to first of all think what that meant in Jane's time. And then we're going to think of our modern equivalents and draw on Jane's wisdom. So really, first impressions now means, you know, what do you think? It's like when you first meet someone, what's your first impression? And here in our era, I think it's it's more it's more muddled because we're a more diverse population. Back in let's say 1800, let's take that as our as our date. Um, Jane Austen lived in a world where lots of people lived in smaller communities where everybody was known, and you, you can see this in her novels. So when Mister Bingley and his party walk into the the uh, assembly room. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone knows they say oh he's got 5,000 a year he's got 10,000 a year <laughs> they've been speculating about them for weeks before yes. they arrive as well haven't they their spies have been out in the yes. community um, they've talked to the servants you know they've they found out the the info maybe from the person who let the hall to them the local lawyer or whatever <laughs> um, there was a great local gossip circle hmm. so when they walk in the first impression is a socio-economic one so it's um where they fit and we also are aware that the bingleys are from a newer source of money um and mr darcy is from an older source of money so he gets you know the kudos for being either he hasn't got he interestingly he isn't ennobled and jane austen it's it's interesting she doesn't go that route because other novels in the period would have made him Sir somebody or Lord somebody, but yes, she doesn't. It is do interesting that, that. She, yeah, she almost deliberately strays away from that. Mm. I don't know whether it would make him too unattainable, or possibly, just... yeah. And also, maybe she felt she didn't actually really know that world. No, exactly, and so... that was a very wise move on her part. I think yes. So, so I think that that um, that there is parallels. We we might be able to judge not always, but we can often judge people's rough economic status by what car they drive though of course it could be like they, they owe lots of money to lots of people if <laughs> yes. they wear a rolex if they wear designer clothes you know yeah. it's that thing and so uh the bingley women are dressed in the top fashions the late local ladies are you know making over their dresses and retrimming them turning them occasionally getting a new one you know so they would be aware of each other's um social sort of money I think that the thing about money um, is mixed up with awareness of class. Hmm. So why don't you have a stab at what you understand as the the layers in society in Jane's time? Because you must you must come across this in your reenactment. I do, and it's quite it's very always really interesting to me um, because you can be anybody you want to in reenacting. That's the joy of it. Yeah. Um, if well, like me, you're a bit of a slob and a T-shirt and jeans girl in, in in your other life. You can dress up a bit and be a lady. But what I quickly found out when I do that 
is that I am separated from the soldiers I reenact with because a lady would not hang around a red coat camp. Never mind if you're Lydia or Kitty. <laughs> not done. Um, why? I need a reason to be there. So maybe I'd be visiting my officer husband, uh, and that's perfectly acceptable. But you wouldn't just turn up at a soldier's camp as a lady and hang around. <laughs> Your reputation would be in shreds very quickly. So I often go off and paint or draw or talk to the public, obviously, um, go into rooms and read, you know, do something of a lady's occupation, possibly, that also enables me to talk to people. So that's why I very quickly um, became a woman of the camp uh, and to give me a good reason to be there. And also I can help the soldiers. I can't gather wood, uh, mind the fire, chop up things uh, that are messy if I'm wearing a, a lady's outfit. Just walking around a garden, you're going to get dirty. <laughs> so mm. we're very quickly made aware that if you are wearing a beautiful outfit, there's very little you can do in that outfit. So again, that's symbolic of your uh, social importance of I'm wearing such beautiful clothes. There is no way I need to earn my living manually <laughs> because uh, uh, anyone who uh, uh, realizes just how difficult get and, and, and labor intensive getting through an ordinary person's day will very quickly re realize there's a reason that Jane Austen would have had a load of aprons to cover her clothes yeah. she was doing dirty tasks and things like that. And you keep your clothes as clean as you can. But the whole reason of having layers is you have a protective outer layer that you can then remove uh, and you have a, a protective underlayer, like your chemise or something. So again, you can wash that, but your at your dress, your main dress that you have to keep going for many years, uh, is protected. Um, but if you are a high status person, of course, you can afford many more outfits than uh, a middle or lower class person can, and that's why so many lower class uh, outfits don't survive, and the higher class ones do. Uh, because the lower class ones would have not only been worn to death and remade and remade, but once they became rags, the rags would have been used. So there are very, very few lower class outfits uh, left existing. But luckily, we have a lot of uh, prints and pictures, obviously, to tell us what yeah. during the day. Yeah. Uh, and one just little thing to clear up for everybody. Um, trousers were worn by working class people like oh, men, yes. like they were baggy outfits. Mm. I was just reading today about um I'm I'm very interested in the naval economics of the era mm. and they tried to ban people work laborers wearing trousers in <laughs> naval shipyards because they were smuggling out uh, <laughs> up, down the trouser leg um smuggling out sort of bits of wood and bolts and what have you it didn't work because that was the clothes the laborers had to wear of and course. breaches were an upper class thing so mm. um well, well, not, not, not just that naval class. people had very loose trousers to yeah. enable them to move around, uh, and again, uh, to, to cover uh, under trousers and things like that. So it would have been quite easy to smuggle stuff in there. And ladies, again, have been taken up at this time uh, with their pockets. Um, so you could, uh, there's, there's a wonderful book, uh, I think, called The Pocket, uh, a sort of social history of women's uh, revolution, if you like, through, through wearing pockets. Uh, and the pockets, of course, you could wear outside your garment but most often it would be it would be a pocket with, through a slit in your skirt and you could have all sorts of interesting things so uh, there's very interesting records of the period showing uh when people lost their pockets or did they were they actually cut purse by mm. a thief um you know how they'd get under your garments i'm not quite sure but 
somehow. Uh, but what they found in pockets were not just things like handkerchiefs, uh, keys, money, obviously. Uh, people have been th smuggling things like ducks, <laughs> <laughs> food, lace. Jane Austen's uh, relative uh, was was uh, taken up, wasn't wasn't she? I think it was yes. uh, over a controversy as to whether she'd stolen some some lace or not. That's um, right. But and and today again to our ears, well, it's just a bit of lace, isn't it? Well, if you know real lace, how long it takes uh, to create, especially a fine bit, that's that's months of work and and skilled work at that. So you know, she was stealing hundreds of pounds worth of of goods right, by our reckoning. So um, this is so so to our theme. This is actually quite a warning. Um, first impressions. You may look very lovely in your dress, but maybe <laughs> underneath that you've got a duck. <laughs> Are you smuggling? Are you smuggling <laughs> a duck? What has it uh, got in its pockets? Is yes. <laughs> find another favourite author. <laughs> so let's let's just for those who aren't familiar, lucky them with the English class system, go through um, <laughs> where they are, and we'll put the people in Pride and Prejudice. We'll slot them in. Okay. So at the very top of society is obviously the royal family. Yes. And the, the and those are numerous, aren't they, Julia? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we won't we won't name them all, but they're, they're no, at the won't. top of the family. Uh, and then you've got. Um, the the nobility uh who are your dukes and your viscounts and so mm. on uh and you've got sort of around that you've got in london the ton now if you watch bridgerton you'll know what the ton is it's the group of people who go dancing with each other mm. and who flirt with each other is it the, the upper ten thousand or the upper yeah five? yeah so it's like the upper they're not crust, all nobles the but they're all moneyed um yeah and known mm. Uh, and then it merges from the nobility into the gentry. Oh, so just to so someone like Lady Catherine de Burr makes it into that. Yes. Darcy probably does too. Yeah, by Maybe association. Mr. Bingley on a good day. You know, <laughs> it, it, he would be. He would be sort of. He'd be accepted get, to keep the numbers up. I, and if Darcy invites him, he would be allowed in. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you must excuse me. I've got a bit of a cold. If you're if you're watching this, you'll see I'm struggling with a cold here. Oh. Um, anyway, so going down from that, at least I'm not coughing like Kitty. <laughs> uh, going down from that, um, you've got the gentry. Now, a gentry is a sir somebody. It's mm. it's that level. Is and squire at the, the, the local, so that they'd probably be more the local squire. It's the Sir William ponds. Lucas. Yeah, it's, exactly. it's that level of society. Yeah. So you're the big man or big lady in your local society. Yeah. So that's probably the kind of titled person that Jane Austen uh, most often met with the exception of her brother who was adopted that's another story but anyway yeah. <laughs> um so that's the sort of commoner garden important person yeah and then below that you've got the rising uh and they may overlap because some of these sirs were people who were came out of being good businessmen yeah and were rewarded with the title so you've mm. got the the rich people coming up because they're doing well in the early industrial revolution. So they yes. might be merchants, they might be people um, of, go, going to the Navy. That was a massive thing. If you supplied the Navy with timber or iron or copper or any of these things, hemp, mm -hmm. um, all sorts of stuff, uh, that's one way of making money. It's a wartime. So mm -hmm. there are fortunes to be made. There in are fortunes to be made, um, you know, supplies for the army and Navy. Yeah. Um, the potteries, Wedgwood, you know. So if you're in that group, you're rising uh, and you're rich and you're probably going to be noble by the time you get to being in the Victorian era. So <laughs> that's the class going that way. 
then um, we're still talking about only a sort of small part of society, even so, the moneyed part. Mm. And then you've got roughly the middling classes. And I don't think they call them middle class. They'd call them middling. Yes, they? yes. And that is your um, your rector, your... Well, educated uh, people, but not, teacher, not much money. Your yeah. lawyer. Yes. Um, your, your land steward. Hmm. Uh, they're professional people who aren't sort of sweating it out in the fields. And actually, some larger farmers would make it into that yes, group. Yes, you know, Well-to-do farmers. Gentlemen farmers, yes. yeah. And sort of in a sort of joining this group, but slightly to one side, are the servants. Hmm. Huge numbers of people in society are serving the other folk. And if you are a butler in charge of a large household, you're quite you're an important person. Yeah. Again, you are a large person in your little world. Yeah. Um, so you you had enormous power over a small bunch of people and were expected to manage them. So you were upper management if if you were yeah. thinking firm. So we're now coming into the, the 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 massed rank. So Mr. Bennett, for example, is a middling kind of person. Yes. Um, he's on the upper end of that um because his life of leisure but that's where he fits a uh, daughter of a gentleman they're called aren't they the Bennett yes. sisters? And as, as lizzie herself says you are a gentleman's son i'm a gentleman's daughter yeah. and that way we are equal she yeah she's trying to collapse social distinctions which was quite revolutionary um yeah. well to uh, discuss you know that, <laughs> that that that's one way of looking at society yeah. uh, and we I, we need to now go and cover everybody else so yes. you've got laborers now a lot of servants are laborers so mrs hill yes. and that lot are just kind of your ordinary laboring people mm-hmm. uh, we haven't quite got to the working class politics yet that seems more of a terminology going along with marxism later on but they are the laboring classes uh you've got loads of people working on the land um you know shepherds People and then, of course, loads of people employed sedges. by the military at this time. Yes, I was going to do the military slightly. They're sorry, like sorry. servant class. They have a sort of slightly... In our behind. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you've got a new industrial working class coming up. You've yeah. got miners. You've got people working in factories. Water power was reaching its sort of height of what it was doing. It was used in forging um, uh, metals. It was used in cotton. You know, so... They were using water power technology and you get big, big factories like at New Lanark near Glasgow. Um, so it's the beginning of that kind of world, which is much more familiar in Victorian period. And then you've got, as you say, you've got the military. We're at war. Um, you've got lots of people in the Navy and the Merchant Navy. Men, I should say, in this case, with a few ladies, women, not ladies, <laughs> uh, hanging on. Um and that's that's obviously necessary in war. Um, and then below all of that, you've got the sort of widows and orphans and the indigent and the vagrants yes. Yes. and the tramps and the people who don't fit in society, like the sort of gypsy classes, those sorts of things. Yeah. I don't know how many of those there were, but I suspect of the poor, there was an awful lot yes. as ever. Um, so that's how it looked. It's the pin, it's the typical pyramid. And Jane Austen's world sits in the middle and the upper top, the top level of the labouring classes. You don't meet yeah. many people below that. I can't think of a character. No, and it's interesting that I think a lot of people's perceptions of Jane Austen was she was upper middle class, but I think in reality she was definitely more middle class, um, uh, teetering on the brink of poverty at times. Mm. Um, 
her, she was elevated sometimes by uh, her her brother who basically got lucky and got adopted by a rich family um so he helped her out and but her brothers all worked um and i think what the other brother was a uh, took over her father's uh, curacy didn't he yeah. um but she herself earned very little during her lifetime i think it's estimated about 800 pounds in total uh, she ever saw for her books um uh, and they weren't really all that I mean, they were very popular amongst certain circles, but they were nothing like as popular as they are now. Um, so I think her popularity definitely came after her death, and more people embraced them. But yeah, they didn't have a classes. Yeah, they didn't have a royalty system. No. So she she sold her books for a lump sum. That was it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also just to mention, I should there is a particular problem for women, um, as you're saying there. Is, limited roles if you were, mm. were an educated woman for earning your own very living. limited yeah uh, and if you were doing something like being a seamstress that's terrible work and um, mm. obviously a mother being a mother is a massive job yeah um, huge um you know lots of people were doing that why not you know society has to carry on and then of course loads and loads of prostitutes people mm. um so first impressions most people could pigeonhole somebody um when they walked in a room where they fitted in society so partly because you knew them <laughs> even if you didn't know them you could look for certain clues that told you where they fitted like accent what they wore what they ate how they spoke their manners that kind of thing yes yes so another first impression um was about religion because i don't think we've talked about religion and jane austen no not um, a lot because obviously the predominant faith was the Church of England in her part of the world. Uh, but at the time, there were um, lots of other other sorts of Christian religions. There were the nonconformists, uh, Methodists, Quakers, Quakers, and so on. <laughs> yeah. And also Catholics, of course. And yes, there were laws yes, against um, to protect it's partly coming out of the, the wars of religion, mm. um, as you all know, but there were laws about Catholics holding certain um, roles in society, mm. you know, not being able to go to the universities and, and things like that. So, and a lot of the Catholics, fo follow me here, come from Ireland. Mm -hmm. So if someone had an Irish accent that was from Southern Ireland, not Northern Ireland, um, you might guess at them being Catholic. And there were some well-known big families who were Catholic. So mm. there was, uh, and in Scotland, of course, there was the, you know, that has has a Protestant Catholic thing going on too. So that that division is in society that you might have a first impression. Oh, you're a Catholic, which was immediately putting them outside of society, a uh, society with the big S, the ton kind of society. Yeah. Um, it was a disadvantage, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Like Tom Lefroy, my Irish friend. Um, yeah. Yes, that that he was impoverished. Well, not impoverished, but he was he was certainly um, held back, shall we say, by his Irish connections when when Jane met him. There and were very very few people rose. who were outside of that particular. So yes. there are not many. If you're uh, say a Muslim or um, Hindu or something, you're probably an overseas visitor or Jewish. Hmm. Um, you're probably you could well be from a traditional Jewish family, but you would be regarded as i don't know an exotic minority well you can um, see how shakespeare treated shylock way back in elizabethan times 
um, Jewish people were already getting a lot of prejudice um, and caricature uh, because pe and I think that sort of thing arises because people don't know many yeah. of whoever's being lampooned. So it's easy to make people into caricatures if you don't know that type of person. Whereas if you live amongst them, uh, you're going to question it and say, well, why are you portraying this person in this way? That That's not what they're like. So there definitely would have been people of other religions mm. within society, particularly in London and places and, and dock places with docks like Bristol yeah. and Liverpool, yes. um, but not within Jane's little circle. Yeah. She's unlikely yeah. to have met many people. Um, of course, if you if you travel to India, as many of her relatives did, then yes. of course your experience is much more opened up. But, mm. but just thinking about Jane's first impressions and what her society um, did, and I think someone coming in with of another religion would be of real interest to um the sort well, of meritan society she, she had that french that that relative uh who escaped the re the, the revolution that yes. would have been a nice exotic person and i think her relative is later held up to be the model for mary crawford possibly yeah she um, marries one of her brothers yeah she marries um, one of her brothers. her name will come to me in a minute person coming from a foreign land who's had an exciting lifestyle so so that was, would have been quite an injection of uh romance into her life Yes, but she would have been. I think she was a conventional C of E person once she got here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I've just I'm blank. I'm blanking on her name. I I do normally know it. Anyway, yes, anyway. Um, okay. So we're going through our first impressions. So mm -hmm. if I'm looking at someone walking into a ballroom, I might think, "Oh, you're such and such in society. This is your religion." Because uh, I'm going to put myself amongst all the biddies, you know, gossiping away. <laughs> That's gossiping where away. I am. Yeah. Um, also, which nation of Great Britain, you come from Welsh, yes. Scottish, Irish, Irish, yeah. and also which country, which part, county? Because um, we're a. For those of you listening from abroad, uh, England itself has loads of different accents. Um, Kate and I are sort of talking in a close. I, to call it, I actually call it a middle class accent. <laughs> yeah, we're in a kind <laughs> of RP that's true world. Or not, is, is yeah. anyone? Yes. But you know, if I was talking to someone from Cornwall or somebody from um, yes up north somewhere you'd hear uh, quite a difference in how we oh yeah how we speak and we would know where we <laughs> were from um yeah. and then i think what the last thing that i want to just mention on the first impressions is so is the society in the town versus the society in the country so in there's that scene in pride and prejudice where mrs bennett well <laughs> um mr darcy is asked if he enjoys the country and and um he sort of talks about town and, and the, about the limited society in the country. And Mrs. Mm. Bennett sort of slaps back, but unfortunately in the slapping back hits herself really. <laughs> she then goes, Oh, well, I we dine with at least a couple of 20 families a week. Yes. Something like that. <laughs> it was like some that. sort of three or four pairs yes, of families, yes, yes. which compared to this, you get the idea that London is full of socializing and um, yes. much wider group of people you call on so she's showing her ignorance um so there is the the country mouse city mouse first impressions going on there as well mm. not that you think mr darcy particularly enjoys the social scene in london i don't know why he said that really but <laughs> <laughs> i always think he'd be much happier up in pemberley in his library with his book you know striding out across the fields um yes i mean if you think about it uh, i enjoy going out and, and uh, socialising uh, like anyone. 
Um, but as I'm a great advocate of uh, my, my favorite Jane Austen quote, there's, there's nothing like staying at home for real comfort. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think I think all of us are probably possibly happiest when we've got our feet up at a good book and, uh, you know, a nice cup of tea or something. And, and we're, we're at home. We're safe. We're comfortable. Everything is to our liking and ordered like, uh, uh, you know, Mr. Woodhouse would have it. Uh, he's got his own little world. And he's directed it to be exactly as he pleases. Who wouldn't like that? <laughs> so going out into the world just can be quite a scary experience for the people who are more introverted. Yeah, they're all in. They're people all in like Jane Austen would probably be a bit of both. She, yeah. uh, I think she moved in quite a small society, but she was documented as going out and enjoying larger society as well. Yes, they're all in lockdown, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Um, so just to ask... Um, about social mobility, mm. I, I've got a few things to say about that. But um, did first impressions stop you being socially mobile at this era? I I don't know if your your first impressions were definitely very important and uh, set your status amongst your peers. Um, I think it was a very hard thing to move from one status to another status. You had people who were apprenticed and could maybe move up through a business. You had uh, sailors like Captain Wentworth, who started off quite impoverished, but through winning prize money, achieved great social status and was suddenly much more um, uh, of a catch uh, uh, for later on in life. Um, so, but it's quite hard to to be allowed to move through the social strata. I think um, certainly the haves would not want too many have-nots mingling with them. And that's why um, there's a ridiculous amount of social rules that are understood and, and you are raised uh, to know them from birth if you're in the upper echelons of English society. And um, I, th I think it was something like, uh, just something as simple as being introduced to somebody and if you say, how how do you do in response to, you know, how do you do? How do you do? You respond. Uh, and if you don't respond, how do you do? Or you respond in a, a, a more casual way, you're instantly, all oh, right, you haven't passed the test. I know wh which social strata you belong to now, and it's not mine. <laughs> so, well, of course, uh, poor old, of course, poor Mr. Collins. Yeah, trying to ingratiate himself. Mm, he introduces himself to Darcy. Mm. Oh, and that's the thing that at the time, anyone reading the book would have just winced in horror at somebody introducing themselves without being introduced. And uh, Sir William, doesn't he, uh, introduces Mr. Darcy to uh, Lizzie as a very desirable dancing partner. And that's the thing. And again, it's about protecting your social uh, well-being, if you like. You wouldn't just go up to somebody and introduce yourself. You would wait for someone of uh, similar social status to introduce this person to you as a safe person to know. Um, you know, we're not rocking the boat here. This is someone who's safe. I can vouch for him. Um, and it was very, very important to get introductions into society if you wanted to get ahead. Uh, you needed to know, and you still, I would argue, need to know the right people to get into certain clubs, to get into certain businesses. Um, there, There is an under society, if you like, of hidden uh, groups of people <coughs> who are all there to help each other. Um, 
and there always has been, um, because it makes sense uh, if, if you want to uh, keep your social standing. But it was definitely a thing at the time that as Kitty and Lydia, you know, rushing up to uh, Hobnob with the officers, were, were definitely pushing things a bit. They, they were behaving in a very forward manner. Yes, yeah, so um, on the social mobility point, outside of Jane Austen's novels, I think mm -hmm. there were places you could be socially mobile. One was um, through, we mentioned, being a very good businessman. So getting money um, mm -hmm. so that you were lending money to the government. And um, the Prince Regent. And the Prince Regent, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that you were rewarded for that and you were given, um, you know, your titles and your... But they do that today. You, how oh, many uh, businessmen today suddenly become lords and ladies through l lending money to politicians? And to be honest, it's been going on all the time oh, prior yes. to that. But because the ability to make money was widening out into uh, industrial areas you were getting uh -huh. a new kind of person making money um yeah. the, the other way of making um your way up the social sort of ladder was in the navy because if you were in the military you had to buy your commission it's expensive yes um in the navy uh the way that worked is it was the place where second and third sons could go and um if they were lucky with how they ran their naval career they could um Rise through yeah, the enemy, enemy yeah. vessels, get some prize money. Mm. Um, prize money means you get proportion of the value of the vessel and the goods that the vessel was carrying. The higher up the social scale you are, like a captain, would get the majority of the prize money and then the rest would be yeah. filtered down through the rest of the ship. So Jane's own brothers, you've got Frank, who does very well out of the Navy, and Charles, who doesn't do it. He's not as lucky. He gets shipwrecked, in fact. Um, <laughs> so that's another way of... Uh, of of rising up through society but i think there is a ceiling so mm. even somebody like george canning who becomes a very important government minister um and has all the connections you could imagine his mother was a actress and he was never allowed to forget it so there is I... this sort of uh unpleasant sort of mm. snobbery snobbery yeah, yeah. and so prejudice a lot of the new people were making their own connections. So they had their own importance within their own group. So you've got the new people like the Lunar Society, who were like the scientists of the day, the ones mm, who invented yes. the... Yeah, uh, like that. Yeah, they, mm. they had their own clubs because, partly because they weren't being in the other clubs and maybe they didn't want to spend time with these folk anyway. Yes. So, right, so that's first impressions. Let's think about... Um, what Jane makes of social status. Um, we've talked about some of this, but first of all, our, where we started with money, I think she doesn't diss money. She thinks it's very useful and she's very practical about this. Yeah, she knows it's a necessary evil. I mean, there's a reason why money, as we've said before, is a romantic trope. There's a reason why uh, all these romance novels who... Uh, how many romance novels can we find if we looked on shelves in booksellers at the moment that had the Duke says this, the Earl says this, you know, the Earl's bride. And I think the reason why titles are, are so often seen as a romantic must-have is because of the, the money and the prestige that goes with them. Yeah. Um, uh, so would, would you buy a book that's... That, and, and the romance, because it's it's something that most of us don't understand. <laughs> it's a foreign, exotic thing, isn't it? So there's this perception of dukes and earls being wonderfully romantic. But I think if you've ever met a duke or an earl, 
and I've seen some from a distance. Um, they're just ordinary people like the rest of us. Yeah. <laughs> just trying to get by as best they can like the rest of us. Unfortunately, they have not... to have a bigger house, but it's more expensive to run. <laughs> and rarely very handsome. But anyway, rarely... that's, that, we need to, you know. Uh, there's ordinary people like the rest of us, yes. So that, but I think it's the it's the exotic, uh, romantic ideal or rom romantic idea of money is necessary, uh, and you know there's this. Uh, at the time, there was this fashion for, well, Marie Antoinette previously. Uh, how how romantic to live in a, as a shepherdess in a little cottage and milk cows. But the reality, of course, was hard, backbreaking work, getting up at five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and any, it was probably the opposite of, of any romantic notion. So anyone like Jane Austen who was practical and saw the effect of having no money uh, uh, several times, and, and in, in fact draws a very um, worrisome picture of genteel poverty, like Miss Bates, knew having money is security. Having money is a roof over your head and food in your stomach and uh, is necessary. It's it's not romantic. It's the more money, the, the more insulation you have against genteel poverty. So where Jane does differ from her society is she is very um, ironic and um, critical of of actual titles. So we all, all we need to do is look at the opening of Persuasion and we see um Sir Walter Elliot consulting you know the the baron yeah yeah the peerage this is his bible how he judges everybody um versus the the new men of worth which Anne Elliot sponsors who are the people who are in the navy who are risking life and limb for the nation uh -huh. against Napoleon and his forces and clearly Jane is on the side of the men of worth and valor. Um, <laughs> and so she actually is saying um, the ossified gentry, the ossified nobility and gentry, that system is not fit for purpose. Um, you have to actually prove yourself for your character. So that's where she is. She would differ from the first impression of immediately assuming that Lady Catherine de Burr or um, Vi what's the Viscountess in... Oh, yes. Uh, Lady Dalrymple. That's it. Lady Dalrymple. She's Lady a Viscountess. Dal yes. Lady Dalrymple. <laughs> yeah. um, actually, most of the people who do have a title um, of that nature in her books are pretty... You know, they're pretty vacuous. creatures, aren't they, really? Yeah. <laughs> well, they all have very strong opinions uh, about how society ought to be run. But none of them, you, you suspect, if you dumped them down and said earn your living, would have a clue about how to survive in normal yeah. society. <laughs> and I think that's the, the, the stupidity, if you like, of uh, the upper classes was this absolute abhorrence of trade. Um, you were frowned upon if you dared think about ways of of earning money. Um, it was, oh, you, you inherit your money or you marry money uh, or you live on credit, uh, but God forbid you should actually earn some money. Yeah. Um, I, I think it almost got from having fought uh, as robber, well, not robber barons, no, that's, that's wrong. Having fought of, of knights as, and barons initially getting uh, grants of land and money from the king, um, initially, they, they became very useless sort of people, almost the opposite of their ancestors, or basically clutching on and marrying into marrying each other to, to keep their wealth. 
but but actually really frowning at anyone who dared. Um, and I think it was out of fear that the idea that somebody could earn enough money to to gain climb up the social ladder. So they were closing ranks frantically to keep such people out because I think they were very well aware of, of how inadequate they actually were deep down. Well, and of course, you got the French Revolution. Um, of course. And that I was mean, a real that's a fear. Shock. Yeah. That was a real fear. Yeah. So, and of course, we, well, we, we dethroned our king, didn't we? We had our revolution <laughs> earlier on when we got rid of King Charles. Got it out of the system then. Got it, hopefully got it out of the system, but it could have come back. And that was a very mm. real fear. So, so I think a lot of the putting down of the populace that occurred um, soon after uh, the wars or during the wars, indeed, um, was about trying to stop the French Revolution happening here, um, which it could have done with bread prices, food prices going up. Uh, we're, we're seeing uh, <laughs> parallels, as we always do in history now, yeah. food prices going up. Uh, the, uh, the rich getting a lot richer off hard times. Um, so all all the um, oil companies recently have published record profits. Who would have thought that? <laughs> so one of the parallels there, um, it's a bit, we could do one on the cost of living crisis, mm. actually, uh, <laughs> is that most of taxation came through yes. um, tax on goods and customs. Yeah. Um, so it was not a tax on income. No. Anyway, um, so... <laughs> yes, that's, a, that's a, a topic for another day. Just yeah. going back to, let's keep with Pride and Prejudice yes. and First yes. Impressions. If you said to me, what is Jane, if I want to understand Jane Austen's novels, what are they about? I would say. <laughs> How long have you got? <laughs> no, no, there is all of them at some level are about your first impressions and how they're wrong. Mm -hmm. It fits every single book. Yes, yes, you could say that. So, and the worst thing you can be in Jane Austen's world is a hypocrite or a fake. Yes. Yeah. So in Sense and Sensibility, it's um, somebody who is a sort of uh, hypocrite like... Um, Willoughby. Well, Willoughby, yes, but also the brothers, the brother of... Oh, yes, uh, yes, the, yeah. the, all, the, the, the absolute... Uh... <laughs> the pinnacle of fakery or or, or hypo hypocrisy, yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, in a case of persuade, I mean, I'm not going to do all the novels, but no, in the no, case no. of persuasion, it's um, really Wentworth misunderstood Anne. You know, he he his, he left with the impression that mm -hmm. she wasn't worth coming back for because she'd listened to advice from um, uh, a well-meaning family friend. Yes, well, yeah, <laughs> the come to family. So then learns the true value, comes back, learns her true value. So you could actually say it's all about first impressions proving wrong. And this is definitely, definitely the case um, of Pride and Prejudice, which is why it was the working title. Because if you think about it, the, the plot driver is, amongst the many things that happen, Elizabeth sees two men. One is Mr. Darcy, who seems proud, objectionable. Um, Nobbish snobbish incredibly rich and handsome uh -huh. but way you know just not inter not interested in her you know uh -huh. all those things um and she sees mr wickham who seems ten sort of very engaging witty yeah, warm, warm warm and very and open mr wickham victim. spills his life story at the drop of a hat doesn't he yeah he's a victim so he's the exact opposite yeah 
And so he he's able to sort of whisper the poison words in her <laughs> ear and persuade her that um, Mr. Darcy did all these dastardly things. Um, when he well, he, he what he does is he emphasizes and enhances. There's it's interesting. There's an algorithm to bring a modern day parallel on social media. If you look at a certain news story, it will give you more news stories in a similar vein. So what that does, it enhances your prejudices. Yeah. Leaves out contrary news stories or maybe un unbiased news stories. And it feeds, keeps feeding you, like Mr. Wickham, more of the same prejudices. Um, so what he does is, is actually just uh, makes Lizzie feel great by saying, yes, you're so right. Your impression is absolutely right. And here's something even worse about Mr. Mm. Darcy. So it, it reinforces her prejudices. And that's exactly what social media algorithms do as well, which I think is why we have so many trolls and so many people saying, you're, you're either with us or against us. There is no way in between because I'm absolutely right. And I know this because Wikipedia told me so. And so did all these algorithms. But actually, they think they're seeing the world around them in one vision but actually they're seeing a very narrow vision of a story yeah yeah so if you're if you've got in a silo out there um <laughs> make sure you read some kind of more reputable news source to get out of it just it to... can be very comforting to have your first impressions reinforced mm. but is it is it reality uh, and i think the more unbiased or the more different opinions you can get which, as Lizzie later finds out, she does start listening to other opinions <laughs> than yeah. ones, ones that reinforce hers. Um, you you can then get a much clearer picture, shall we say, of what's actually going on. I think actually what you've done, Kate, is you've um, effortless, effortlessly brought us into thinking about Jane's um, applicability now. Because mm. I think it's exactly where it is that... Um, her heroine goes on a journey from prejudice to knowledge and she actually so and it's also she judges she discriminates so she doesn't say oh yes he was always right about everything <laughs> so um in the letter that he sends there's two parts to it one is oh mr wickham is a bounder which <laughs> we all go oh crikey he's you know he's awful but then the second part of the letter, is it that way around? Anyway, it's in two parts. <laughs> the other part of the letter is about the behaviour of the family at the ball and Jane. Yes. So um, he, Jane, he's just character. justifying his behaviour and his, his behaviour mm. to her. And she has to admit he has a, a, a kernel of uh, justification. Well, she's been embarrassed by her family too. She's been embarrassed. Yeah, absolutely. But she says he doesn't understand Jane. Yes. So his first impression of Jane... You want mm -hmm. to see what I'm doing there? It's, it's incorrect <laughs> that actually Jane is hiding her feelings mm. because she has been, she's protecting herself and she's been taught to behave like that. Mm -hmm. In fact, she's behaving exactly how Mr. Darcy behaves, but he doesn't recognise it in the female <laughs> version of himself, which yeah. is a handsome woman who hides what she feels. Um, so there is a, she's, so Lizzie isn't immediately leaping over to the other side saying, oh, I agree with everything Mr. Darcy no, said. No, absolutely she, not. She's sort of learning to actually make her own Evaluation. assessments. Yeah. And it's when Darcy actually really steps out. I mean, she's warming towards him, but when he steps out and actually does something which risks his own pride, and that is going to, you know, get Wickham by the scruff of the neck and um, 
engineer the marriage with Lydia, um, where they're each other's punishment. Yeah, I mean, that's very humbling for somebody like Mr. Darcy, because he's actually having to reward the person that nearly seduced his sister. So he must be absolutely um, fighting his own nature about that, but it's for a, a better good overall in that he's saving essentially the Bennett family. Because the other reactions you could have done at that point, and in fact, I think uh, Mrs. Bennett mentions this in her hysterical way, which is, yeah, um, they could have been a duel. Yes, people did settle. It was illegal to fight duels, but people yes. did it. Yeah, um, and but so, the consequences of fighting a duel, yeah, and in reality, the consequences of fighting a duel, as as, as various people found out to their cost, was you create an enormous scandal. Yeah, it wouldn't have solved the problem. No, it would you have made have, the problem worse. You might have punished yeah uh, people who fought duels then fled abroad often or had mm. forced to go abroad because the scandal was so great nobody would have accepted them in society anymore the only person who i know who sort of came through two duels and with a burnished (laughs) reputation was sheridan Uh, he 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 was challenged um in about the 1780s sometime around then Mm. um about the woman uh, this beautiful singer in Um, Bath or Bristol and or that you know that sort of area where she was performing yes um and he was a suitor the other suitor challenged him they fought Sheridan won uh the guy wasn't satisfied challenged him again they fought again Sheridan was very badly wounded but the lady stayed with Sheridan and married him Ah. and then they lived unhappily ever after (laughs) Sadly, if this was a novel, they would all be. Yeah. <laughs> but unfortunately, it didn't. That fell so apart. Do you but anyway, think Sheridan got away with it because he was part of the demi monde, the the society that was almost expected to be more flamboyant. Being an actor, I think because he was a hero, and be- because he was very personable, people loved him as an actor. He was yeah. very witty. He was a mis- he was a little bit of a Mister Wickham uh, in terms of being very engaging, very witty. Everybody yeah. would like to have him at their parties. So I think there there might have been a little bit of uh, license given to him because of that, possibly. But also he was him the one who asked for the jewel. Ah, well, that makes a difference as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. So it's the yeah. Anyway, so we've gone a little bit <laughs> off into the off into dueling. So looking at our era, what do you think Jane would like about how we treat um, first impressions and what she would dislike? So first impressions, things like swiping left or right on. <laughs> Apps. Yeah, what would she make of that? I think she would approve that women have more choice about who they accept. I think she would have been utterly confused by the different uh, roles that women had on social media. I mean, you've got everything from people demonstrating their professions, like uh, women... Uh, just showing off uh, zoo animals <laughs> in there with no makeup and, and lots of uh, uh, capabilities. And then you've got the, the TikTokers and, and uh, influencers. Uh, I think she would have had a field day with influencers <laughs> uh, showing us how to make up our faces so that you're totally unrecognizable from your normal face. <laughs> so I, I think it's, it's a circus really. It's the, the whole well, you'd like you, you you get the impression that this is real life, but uh, I think it's a it's a very small. Uh, uh, it, it's it's a f- full of people who live their lives on social media and 
are actually don't know what to do with themselves if they're not on social media. So if you take their phones away or if you took their computers away, do you think they would cease to exist? <laughs> well, I think that if she was writing today, uh, Caroline Bingley would be a influencer. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> or would like to think herself an influencer anyway. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, that's that's the I don't know if anyone's I'm sure someone's done a rewriting recently and they probably put her in that role. But that's yeah. what I think. Um, well, they had it... Clueless, the movie uh, with Emma Woodhouse being an influencer of her, her social. Yes. Service, yes. So I hope. Hopefully, so. Yeah. The, that, funny to think that Clueless is already dated because I know pre smartphone. <laughs> um, yeah, I think she would. <clears throat> I think, I mean, her 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 novels are a uh, caution us against first impressions, and I think she would be saying, "Beware, yes, uh, you know, enter this fray with a great deal of irony, and be clever about who you trust." Um, yes, and as as I think you've mentioned before, look at their actions, not their words. Yeah. Again, a lot of her books are around that, aren't they? What do people say? And what do people actually do? And Frank Churchill is a, is a classic one of that. Yeah. Coming along and being, again, uh, very charming, very roguish. Everybody loves him. He's he's fun to be with. And then uh, later on, sorry, spoilers, uh, revealing himself to have basically been uh, not living a lie, but certainly keeping a very important secret uh, and people understandably feeling betrayed by that. And I think that's partly because he believes he's the hero of his own romance. Yes. Oh, definitely. Uh, he's totally he, selfish. And I think I've yeah. said that before, haven't I, about mm. uh, the difference between heroes and villains in Jane Austen. A lot of the villains, or certainly people she doesn't approve of, are utterly selfish and thinking mm. only of their own <clears> needs. <throat> Forget about everybody, how it affects everybody else. So in this week, where we're celebrating the anniversary of the publication of Pride and Prejudice... We have had several, certainly in politics, both in the States and over here, um, problematic characters whose first impressions were not correct. <laughs> uh, thinking of, there's a, isn't there a member of Congress called George Santos? Who's oh, lots of I different was reading names. a little bit about him. Um, yeah. And I think he's come out, he basically is a bit of a Walter Mitty type character um, where he sort of said, I went to this school, um, my uh, these these are my sort of sterling credentials for being a man of the people. I worked at this office. I have this charity that I've set up for little furry animals. None of it was true. And then he said, oh, well, I just sort of said it wasn't quite true. That wasn't quite what I said. And sort yeah. of backpedaled furiously when people actually bothered. Because I think a lot of people, especially uh, on social media, um, rely on the fact that people don't do research anymore um, or, or not. They rely so much on first impressions. That is the only impression. They're not going to do a second look at me. They're going to take me as I present myself. And indeed, a lot mm -hmm. of people do. So I have, through bitter experience myself, um, and knee-jerk reactions to stories and clickbait, as they call it, um, started holding myself back from, a, from an emotional reaction to something and saying, why are they telling me this story? What's behind them making me feel this way? Um, and and it's very interesting psychologically um, how often first impressions are the only impressions people actually believe and want to believe. Even if you come back to someone and says, that story was total false and this is the true story, 
people will still believe the first story and not want to listen to the actual facts. I noticed that he told quite a few of his lies uh, on podcasts. So <laughs> just want to say that we're not telling any lies this morning that I'm aware of. Um, well, we're aware of anyway. <laughs> no, no. Uh, then also there's a, a chap over in the UK, uh, Nadim Zahabi, who's a minister who's been in charge of tax policy and is been problematic about how he paid his taxes so, you know i, I don't shock know what the horror julia yeah. shock horror i don't know what the truth of that story is but anyway it's been in the press um so you know it's the case of she's ever relevant uh in telling us to be careful about our first impressions and to um dig deeper and look at what people do do they pay their tax they, did they actually what do they say Need a volleyball do? team or whatever it was in the George Santos case. Yeah. So uh, moving to our Darcy and Wickham of the week, do you have? <laughs> um, I think you know I'm going to mention as my Wickham. Yes. Those two chaps we just talked <laughs> about. Decidedly, they, they're in good company with Wickham. Um, so that's what about a Darcy? Let's cheer us all up. Um, I think it's been a good week for U.S. President Joe Biden. He's. Uh, quashed al-Qaeda and is hopefully passing a, an Inflation Reduction Act for the American people, but we will Oh, see. gosh, I, I'm, I'm unaware of all of this. Oh, well done. <laughs> um, okay, so... Have you found somebody? Uh, he's been your Mr Darcy, has he? Um, I think, for me, my Mr Darcy is... Um, it's, a, it's a thing. It's, it's like a, a not not an individual... Okay. Uh, I, I mentioned that I've been doing local radio interviews oh, yeah. because um, the third of my Jane Austen investigates books <laughs> called The Convicts Canal is now yes. out, and it's oh. based on yeah, it's based on first impressions. So yeah. if you're a listener and you want to live in Jane Austen's childhood for a bit and imagine the kind of people she might have met that inspired her later novels, plus uh, get to grips with the background, historical background of her era. Uh, you might enjoy these books or your kids might enjoy these books. Um, anyway, when I was doing the interviews, I thought I wanted to do a shout out for local radio. Oh, yes. Because I've been listening in to what's going on on the radio beforehand, before I'm interviewed. Yeah. And I've been thinking about how nice it is that there still exists um, these networks where you can hear about your very local news. Mm, which is often the, far more fascinating than anything yeah. national going on. Because one of the reasons why you get a George Santos, I'm sorry, George, I keep using you as an example, <laughs> but it's because people don't know each other. And we're, yes. we're now happily back in the assembly room in Meryton. Yes. Um, if he'd walked in there, everyone would have known who he was and would have yeah. known he was lying. Yeah. Um, local radio, for a certain extent, helps keep local politicians and um, local, you know, if there's a local scandal, well, they will cover yes. it. Honest, Which, yeah. yeah. So uh, we do need our local journalists on oh, radio to keep our democracies healthy. So that's yes. my that's my Mr. Darcy. Yes, I would totally agree with that. Yeah, I was just thinking. Um, uh, Jane Austen was obviously influenced by Fanny Burney, mm. uh, and uh, I was thinking about the title First Impressions" as a working title for a book. I and mean, you're an author; I'm sure you have lots of working titles for your mm. novels. Totally change. Possibly the, your editor steps in and says, why not call it this? And you yeah, go, they no. do. <laughs> <laughs> but Pride and Prejudice is a much stronger title. First Impressions is kind of a little bit sort of wishy-washy and girly and, mm. oh, that's nice. And then Pride and Prejudice sort of is much more a strong um, 
sounding title and, and dra more dramatic, isn't it? And uh, interestingly, I think uh, there's a uh, an idea that the title Pride and Prejudice came from this book, Cecilia, written by Fanny Burney, uh, as there's a sentence towards the end that said, remember, if to Pride and Prejudice you owe your miseries so wonderfully is, is good and evil balanced, that to Pride and Prejudice you will also owe their termination. And if you, you're a young Jane Austen, I think she would have been about 12 when, or 7 when, when that book first came out, um, riffling through her family's uh, library. That would have obviously stuck in her memory, maybe for use later. <laughs> yeah, she was also, though, to be fair, she was also in a title pattern um, thing mm. at that point because you got Sense and Sensibility. Yes, exactly. Pride that and Prejudice, you know, who maybe Mansfield Park was supposed to be <laughs> Constancy and something. Parks and Gardens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, another, uh, sorry, do you, you have any say. Jane Austen news? Do I have any Jane I have a little bit, yes. Um, oh, I also wanted to say, Julia, just just as I've done the research on this, first impressions, how long do you think it takes to have a first impression of someone? Oh, it's going to be a millisecond, like point, <laughs> point seventh of a second about, or something. About seven seconds. About seven seconds. We, we, I was looking on psychology today, as one does, uh, riffling through the, the library of the internet, um, and they they determine that it takes about seven seconds for you to, to make a first impression of someone and that first impression is very hard to budge then and and your first impression is often uh based on what you see but also based on your societal biases so interestingly in western society we might make our first impressions on somebody's uh physique oh he looks or she looks very strong uh, obviously we're influenced by beauty and beauty is in the eye of the beholder but I have observed myself that societally accepted beauty um, gets you more. <laughs> people yeah. treat you better, people give you free stuff, people expect you to be a beautiful person inside as well as outside. But interestingly, they were saying that um, societies like China, so so it's it's uh, for Western societies, it's based on um, sub subtle subtle associates, subtle facial vocal cues, and obviously your your physique. But somewhere like China, your the way they form first impressions is based on your competence. So it's not so much your physique, it's your intelligence, their perception of your intelligence and your social standing. So Mr. Darcy would have done better in China than, uh, the, than the UK, I think. Um, <laughs> so we're back to our, our news items. Uh, and Sanditon, <laughs> love it or hate it, um, will premiere Sanditon Series 3, which will be the last series, they promise will premiere on US Network PBS, and I think it's also uh, financed TV. by Masterpiece Theatre and ITV. Mm -hmm. So, But what I liked about this is uh, that a campaign when Sanditon was uh, stopped dramatically after its first series, leaving us on a cliffhanger, um, a campaign called the Sanditon Sisterhood was created after the series was cancelled to campaign for its reinstatement. And it obviously worked because... Uh, another company thought, oh, there's still a fan base there. We'll start it up again. But I just love the idea of a sisterhood working in the shadows like the Illuminati to to get Sanderson <laughs> back on our screens. Um, House in Hampshire uh, has been awarded a prestigious award for its contributions to education in early women writers. Uh, so the 2022 Francis Garnham Award by Historic Houses was awarded not only for the preservation of Jane Austen's home and work, but for their excellent library, 
and program of educational events and exhibits. And if you ever had the chance, and I have, because I've been very lucky, um, to go to the Chawton House Library, it's fascinating and it's, it is very accessible. Sometimes you have to ask to uh, access it, but it's a, a really beautiful collection of books. Uh, and finally, uh, Lethbridge Public Library Crossings Branch have created an Austin-themed escape room. Uh, oh, wonderful. incredibly successful, apparently. So the librarians have all got together their extensive Austin knowledge and created a Regency period challenge. Uh, and it's been such a success that they're, they're doing some more themes next year, I think, on Pokemon and Star Wars, for instance. The name. <laughs> now, my, my, main, my instant uh, thing on hearing this was, yes, I would love an Austin-themed escape room, but the, the main problem was I wouldn't want to escape it. <laughs> ah. ah that's very oh, profound oh there in that plan i'd like to stay there going oh they did this oh look at this oh yes they brought in this person <laughs> that's lovely and as you say uh, i like the fact that they started with jane austen you know. <laughs> of course always a good place to start i find thank you so much kate and pleasure uh, as always julia yeah. and as ever you made an excellent first impression and an equally good <laughs> last impression <laughs> let's hope so <laughs> Right, I'm putting on my bonnet and going off for a week where I will no doubt muddy my hems. Okay. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs>